I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chen, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. Today I'm joined by Dr. Paul Seidler, Assistant Professor of Pharmacology and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Southern California, Mann School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Dr. Seidler's research delves into areas such as amyloid disaggregation, structural biology, and proteostasis, and he has extensively researched the interactions of pathological proteins with therapeutic molecules. His recent study, published in Nature Communications, explores how molecules found in green tea affect tau, one of the proteins commonly associated with Alzheimer's disease, which could lead to new developments in Alzheimer's treatments in the future. Dr. Seidler, welcome to Dementia Matters. Great to be here, Nate. Thank you. Now, I'm going to confess that as an avid green tea consumer, I am very interested in your work and the findings from your study. I am hopeful that you'll be able to share some positive news or at least some hopeful news for our listeners who also enjoy a hot cup of green tea during their day. (laughs) So let me start by asking you, your study was focused on the tau protein, not amyloid, not one of the other proteins linked. Why tau? I got interested in tau almost 10 years ago when a lot of different amyloid therapies were being tested. And it was becoming, two things were becoming clear. First of all, that amyloid therapies were were really well on their way to doing what they were going to do. And that tau was really kind of the last frontier in my eyes that uh, is needed to get in check uh, in order to, to really manage Alzheimer's disease. So in the case of Alzheimer's, you can see two, two primary pathologies occurring, amyloid plaques occurring outside of the cells of the brain and then uh, tangles of the protein tau occurring inside of neurons. And the tangles of tau turns out, as PET imaging has allowed realizations in the last several years, it it can be seen that tau aggregation occurs, coincides with the first memory impairments in Alzheimer's disease, and that as tau aggregation continues to accrue, the symptoms of dementia and brain atrophy worsen. So the thinking is that you really need to get tau aggregation under control along with amyloid beta. And I think that's a really important point, Paul, is that so amyloid and tau are important as we are thinking about Alzheimer's disease and what that process looks like. But it is tau that is more correlated with what a person is actually experiencing, the symptoms of thinking change. And so, of course, it makes sense then that one would want to find out ways to prevent or or break down tau. But I mean, it must be difficult because you mentioned tau is in a brain cell. So is it as easy to get to tau as it is to amyloid? No, unfortunately, that's really been a major uh, roadblock over the last several years. So, you know, we've seen that the anti-amyloid antibodies that, that have produced some effects in slowing dementia symptoms in the clinic, you know, are, are, are promising. And yet, the same approaches using monoclonal antibodies directed against tau aggregates really have, have not produced the results that clinicians and scientists have wanted to see. And the reason is because antibodies tend to work very well outside of the cells 
because they, they don't cross cell membranes. But when you're starting to target uh, intracellular proteins, unfortunately, antibodies aren't really the most straightforward option. So as a result of that, we've really had to go back to square one and reinvent the wheel. Whereas it would have been nice if we could have just applied the methodologies that are working, you know, to, to tackle tau. I mean, it seems like you have a harder task here, you know, have a drug that addresses tau in a brain cell, create a drug that gets through the blood brain barrier, gets through the, the membrane of a brain cell, then locates the tau and then does what you hope it does. In some respects, yes. In other respects, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? So likewise, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. You know, the approaches that we have been attempting and using really are tried and true approaches in drug discovery over the last, you know, half, half a century uh, in terms of structure-based design. We're just applying new methodologies that didn't exist five or 10 years ago. So we can take new capabilities and, and new approaches to, to achieve these measures. That's really exciting. It's, and it's nice to know that up how science builds upon itself and you're able to use or able to do something that you just couldn't do five years ago. Now, I want to get into the, the, the topic itself because you've been working with this compound called EGCG, and I'll, you'll explain that to me in a second, but it's commonly found in green tea. And so I'd like to know, you know, what's significant about these molecules or this molecule that's found in green tea, especially as we think about brain health? You know, why did you go to this compound? Yeah. So the, the story of how I actually got interested in, in EGCG, it, it was a, a slow evolution project of, of many failed experiments, as it, as it turns out. I had started out trying to design drugs drug-like molecules to inhibit the process of aggregation. So if you have an aggregate or a fiber of tau, that tau has the ability to recruit new, new molecules of tau to it. So it, it catalyzes its, its, the aggregation of, of tau. And so we were using structures to design inhibitors of tau, and somebody suggested to me, hey, why don't you take some, some natural product chemicals that are set in the literature to bind to amyloid types of fibrils and see if you can use one as a control for your, for your experiments. So that's where I started using EGCG. What works great in the assays. And so then my goal became, well, I'm going to make something better than EGCG. And after quite some time, I couldn't make something that was better than EGCG. And I decided I should study EGCG and figure out how the heck it's working. And luckily that coincided with a number of technological breakthroughs in the field that enabled us to really start to tease apart mechanistically how EGCG is working. It is funny how things just happen to come together though. Um, and I appreciate the, the honesty in, in failed projects leading to a successful one. <laughs> uh, so then with that in mind, what did you do in the study that we're talking about and what did you find? Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I uh, sort of doubled down and decided to start investigating EGCG as, as a, a tau inhibitor, uh, the first question that really came to mind was, is it really even having a direct effect on tau? So the kinds of experiments we were doing are, are in cells, right? Where we can take a chemical, add it to the cell, and look at its effects on the tau aggregation inside the cell. 
Well, a lot of chemicals can upregulate different pathways, which maybe have indirect effects, right? Important in their own right, we were really interested in identifying something that, that could bind to tau and have an effect on tau. So uh, I made uh, recombinant fibers uh, of tau, synthetic uh, fibers from the lab, and measured the binding of EGCG to the tau fibers by a process called ITC. It's a uh, calorimetry. It measures the, the heat of binding. And before that experiment, I, took a I saved a little bit of sample. And then after that experiment, I took a little bit of sample. And I put them both onto uh, a grid for, for electron microscopy. Now, before the experiment, I could see there were fibers everywhere by using the electron microscope. After the experiment, I could barely find any fibrils. And I thought, well, I must have messed up when I was making the grid. So I went back to the sample and, and took some more. And now it had been a couple hours later, made the grid. It was even worse. There's no fibers anywhere. And then I, I realized maybe, maybe we're onto something. Maybe uh, the fibers are disappearing for a reason. Uh, so that led to a number of different biochemical experiments and also experiments using uh, Alzheimer's brain-derived tau, uh, ultimately, which, which led us to the conclusion that EGCG is having these disaggregating effects on tau. It's funny how you initially thought it was a mistake, and so you had to repeat <laughs> it. It's good that you repeated it, so that reinforces that it's real. Yeah. Um, so then in your paper, you know, you question whether sort of this tried and true method of small molecule drug discovery will actually work in Alzheimer's. And, and what, what do you mean by that? And what does your study suggest when you think about the methods of how we do this? Yeah, so I mean, the, the conventional way uh, structure-based drug discovery works is if we, if we think in terms of, say, an enzyme and a substrate, right? So the enzyme has a structure which, which houses an active site. And the active site can bind to a substrate, small molecule, and do chemistry on it, essentially. So if we want to make a drug for that enzyme, we have a bullseye. We know exactly where we want to put a drug molecule to elicit the effect. And that is the active site, right? That's defined by the active site and the substrate, substrate's binding. So really, one of the greatest challenges with, with amyloid and tau fibril drug discovery is where, where's the bullseye? Where do we put a drug molecule to elicit a desired effect? And I would say that that knowledge has been lacking for a long time in the field, which is one of the reasons that we've had a hard time designing drugs for, for Alzheimer's disease and other related diseases. So what the first thing that the, the most at the most fundamental level, the, the contribution that we've made is that we've identified a druggable site on the Alzheimer's tau filament. That gives us a bullseye. We know, now know where to direct molecules. We know what surface we want to hit to elicit a, an inhibitory effect. Um, mechanistically, we start to tease apart additional information about how we might want a, a small molecule to interact and what we might want it to do to the fibril in order to elicit those inhibitory effects. So, so we've, first of all, at the, at the most basic level, we've just mapped it out and said, here's where you want to put something. And then in a more chemical mechanistic uh, perspective, we start to understand what features of the small molecule we might want to exploit in order to uh, harness an inhibitory effect. Are there other bullseyes that are known for the tau protein? At the moment, I'm going to say no. However, there, there is now another binding site that is defined by PET ligands. So, you know, we talked early on about, you know, the, the imaging studies. 
Well, the imaging studies are guided by uh, radioactive small molecules that bind to tau, and they do bind to a different site. So far, it's not been shown that anything that binds to the, this PET ligand site has inhibitory activity, but that's something that we're, we're now investigating. So you have found a bullseye on this, this protein, and we want this protein to break down. And But you can also study, well, how is it actually doing it? How is it breaking down this protein? Are there other ways we can do this more efficiently, more effectively? And so there's still a lot to be done, mm-hmm. sounds like. So then I want to take a step back and get to a question which I'm assuming a lot of my listeners are thinking about too, which is, well, does this mean that green tea by itself is a good way to maintain brain health or prevent Alzheimer's disease? Do you Are you a, a supporter of green tea because it has this compound EGCG? I mean, there, there's clearly a lot of beneficial effects to green teas. They're loaded with good natural products. Now, the, the primary limitation is how much of this stuff can make it from your gut to your bloodstream and then from your bloodstream to your brain. So the, the first challenge is that the physiochemical nature of the, of the natural products, these polyphenols, tends to limit the amount of them that could even in principle um, make it into the brain or across the cell membrane. Now, that's not to say that none does. I think studies have shown that some do. Some concentration does make it to the brain and some concentration can cross the cell membrane. So that's, I, I do think that there could be long-term uh, consequences, good consequences to uh, consuming these kinds of things over you know decades to support healthier aging, and that's that's a study uh, we are doing a um, a study to look at that, and I think a lot of uh, epidemiological evidence also suggests that there's beneficial long term uh, consequences. Right now, that being said, different natural products have, have we're starting to recognize can it's not just about the fundamental chemical itself, but rather its interactions with itself. So we, we, are, uh, we have discovered some natural product polyphenols that can actually bo- uh, bond in, together in ways that shield their, their hydrophilic character, which potentially could allow them to have more, more hydrophobic behavior. So there might be, you know, when we think about drug discovery, we tend to think about just this, the drug itself and less about how it interacts as a, a formulation. And it turns out there might be formulation solutions to some of these uh, difficulties as well. So I'm going to ask you to explain to our listeners hydrophilic, hydrophobic, and why that matters in the mm. context of drugs and treat, trying to treat this tau protein. Yeah, sure. So uh, hydrophilic is a water-loving molecule, and hydrophobic is a water fearing molecule. And uh, these polyphenols have a number of groups that can hydrogen bond, so interact with aqueous water-based materials, essentially. And this is one of the things that allows them to bind to the tau fibers and disaggregate the tau fibers. So it's an important part of their bioactivity. However, uh, the brain is shielded by a hydrophobic barrier. So molecules that are hydrophilic will will have a very difficult time uh, finding a little pathway uh, through that hydrophobic barrier. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Yeah. And then going back to your answer, I think it's really important for us to hear that, you know, you've shown that this compound EGCG 
breaks down the tau fibrils, but you're using you know certain concentrations, you're using them in certain cells that are not in the human body. And so there is a difference, right, between what you've done and what you're now looking at, which is human consumption. Mm-hmm. So for our tea listeners, you know, you're not saying, oh, this is going to do it. It's that there is there is a relationship though, and you're right. exploring further in human beings. That's right. Yeah. So then, based on your findings, what potential new treatments or interventions might be on the horizon for Alzheimer's disease? Well, I do think that tau therapies are are really in the next horizon, and I and I tend to think that it's going to be a small molecule therapy. So the approaches that my lab is investigating, particularly are small molecules that bind to the, the tangles of tau to either elicit disaggregating effects, meaning that they, they um, reverse the tangles, thereby inhibiting uh, their effects, or another way is to, to potentially target, bind and target those tangles and neutralize their effects. So you basically make a neutralizing coat around the fibril, so that way it's not seen by the cell in a toxic or harmful way anymore. So, and this is something that we talk about a lot in research is, you know, so this compound would be potentially beneficial, but you have to have the tau fibrils already mm-hmm. forming to break them down. But now you're talking about potentially preventing the buildup of toxic tau fibrils. And so in essence, even getting earlier and earlier in in helping people potentially because they may not even have the towel fully formulated if you're going to use the therapy that way. Yeah, most definitely. That's, that's yeah, yet another, you know, approach, which is of course to, to target what they call the monomer. So the pre-aggregated form and, and really, um, you know, prevent it from, from aggregating. So that's, that's another approach that a lot of labs are taking. That sounds very exciting. You're speaking more and more to this idea of prevention as Mm -hmm. much as treatment. So in the broad context of drug discovery and Alzheimer's research, where do you see the most promise or potential breakthroughs in the next decade? Well, I think it's going to be combination therapy. So I think that it's it's pretty clear that the amyloid beta therapies are, are making some headway, but they're not going to do it on their own. I think we're going to see big improvements in the therapeutic management of Alzheimer's disease as we start to break into these these pharmaceutical grade tau inhibitors. So, you know, when I when I say that, I mean the chemicals that have the potency of EGCG but but have better brain permeation. So, you know, chemicals that that can really enter the the CNS space, get inside of the neurons and neutralize the tau. So those combination therapies with the, the anti-amyloid um, treatments are going to be really important in changing the course of disease. And then in addition, we're, we and many others are very interested, as you s- spoke about, is in prevention, right? So uh, it's very, also very clear from epidemiological studies that there are lifestyle uh, modifications that we can make to delay onsets of dementia to a degree. And in my way of thinking... There's no good reason to not supplement uh, healthy lifestyles with these, you know, polyphenol-rich uh, chemicals and, and supplements for sort of long-term, potentially long-term benefit uh, to healthier aging. Well, you're speaking my language, Paul. Multimodal therapies and this idea of adding to lifestyle prevention strategies—I think this is really, really exciting. 
And so I'm going to end with a very important question for you, and I'm going to draw a line for you. Do you only drink green tea or are you open to coffee? Oh, well, yeah. I think the saying goes, I drink coffee because I must, but green tea is my real cup of tea. <laughs> okay, so that, there we go. Multimodal therapy, Paul. So we have we have both. Okay. Well, you know, with that, I'd really like to thank you for being on Dementia Matters. Again, this is Dr. Paul Seidler, Assistant Professor of Pharmacology and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Southern California, Mann School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Look forward to having you back on. Very good. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and Caitlin Rowerdink and edited by Taylor Eberhardt. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.